Virginia keeps its baseball season alive in dramatic fashion, ending ODU's dream year in the process. JMU softball captivates the sports world, while an off-field incident rocks Virginia Tech football. We'll talk about that, UVA lacrosse winning back-to-back national championships, Coach K's retirement at Duke, and much, much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 51 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here, as he always does, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you, sir? I'm well. Good afternoon. It's great to talk to you. We don't uh, we don't interact as much. <laughs> it's still right now as as I think we're used to, and uh, both of us were hoping to to pop over to Richmond actually for an event for uh, our sports department intern. It didn't work out for either of us, but um, these podcasts are kind of most of my coworker interaction still. <laughs> I think one of the reasons we're both looking forward uh, to ACC kickoff and media days in, in Charlotte so much to actually get to see some of these colleagues that we really do enjoy spending time with. Absolutely. It'd be the first time since the ACC tournament in March, pretty much. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it a little later. I, I went up to Hartford for the uh, lacrosse Final Four, and, and there were a few media people there I knew, and uh, it was just sort of refreshing. It, it felt a little bit closer to normal, and um, we're, we're still inching that direction, which is nice, and uh, can't wait, can't wait. Now, David, we don't have either of college sports, you know, real cash cows, football or basketball this time of year, but we've we've had plenty of stuff to cover, and um, as I mentioned, UVA has already picked up another national championship in lacrosse. We'll, we'll get to that later. JMU became a national darling with its run in the NCAA softball tournament, and of course, Virginia baseball now finally living up to that preseason hype. Uh, let's start there with the Diamond Hoos. They they came into the year a, a top five team. People had really high expectations and slow start kind of washed that all out. Speaking of washed out, <laughs> their game Monday night. <laughs> but Virginia ultimately uh, gets to play Old Dominion in the regional final in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, they advance. They delivered a game befitting of how that week and that weekend in, in South Carolina played out uh, another close game. David, it was a, a wildly entertaining regional. It really was. And to to consider, you know, this is Virginia's seventh regional championship, seventh trip to the Super Regionals, all under Brian O'Connor. The first time the Cavaliers have done so coming out of that loser's bracket, dropping that initial game to South Carolina and having to win four straight and go deep, deep, deep into that pitching staff. (laughs) And in the last two games, having to face an old Dominion team that led the country in home runs. Yeah, sort of the the opposite of ideal, right? You're, you're getting to a bunch of pitchers who haven't thrown much, certainly haven't thrown much in pressure situations, and and you're facing that ODU lineup. Let's make sure we talk a little bit about uh, ODU before we move on, because they really uh, put together an impressive season. And that lineup that you mentioned, really anchored by a couple Richmond area guys, Kyle Battle, Carter Trice, uh, Battle, a fifth year senior who's who's dealt with injuries. I wrote a story about him last week, his father dealing with Parkinson's. Um, he's really been through a lot to get to this point, and was very emotional about getting to play in a regional. And then Trice, a freshman who uh, came to ODU, saw a very veteran lineup, wasn't sure where he'd fit in, and uh, he certainly has fit in well. And, and they've been a big part 
uh, of the reason that ODU has put up the kind of runs it has. Yeah, one one win away from its first ever Super Regional. I mean, yesterday was arguably the largest game in, in program history. And to lose four to three on, on a walk off by Devin Ortiz in, in extra innings, about as agonizing a finish as you could imagine for Chris Finwood's bunch, especially since the Monarchs took a three to two lead mm. into the late innings and then allowed the tying run to score on back to back wild pitches. Yeah, you think about a throw you'd, you'd want back, a pitch you'd want back, and, and there's two of them right there. And um, denies ODU the history that it was on the brink of. Also denying the history, you mentioned Devin Ortiz and David, before he ever hit that walk-off home run, he started the game on the mound. He went four scoreless innings. That's great. That's a big start. Mind you, Devin Ortiz only threw two innings all season. Uh, yep. He has an injury to his non-throwing shoulder. He, he he didn't pitch this year. He certainly was a promising pitching prospect coming in. But uh, this is a guy that didn't pitch for UVA, goes out and throws four scoreless innings to get them off to the start they needed and and hold down that, that lineup that we were just talking about. Amazing. He, he told us yesterday that it was the first time he'd started a game on the mound since his senior year of high school in 2017 was really good out of the bullpen for UVA in 2019 and then this year had thrown only two innings now all that said Brian O'Connor reminded us that during the season this year in in inter-squad midweek scrimmages he would use Ortiz and even stretched him out to two three four innings just for this scenario. And darn if it didn't emerge when the Cavaliers had to go to that final game, the fifth game for them of the Columbia Regional. Yeah. And then Ortiz finishes what he started. It was his walk-off home run in the 10th that gives Virginia the win. Now, when the game was rained out Monday, Ortiz found a positive way to look at that. Here's what he had to say. I was looking forward to it from the minute my eyes opened that day. Um, So when I came back to the hotel after last night, I was a little frustrated, um, a little frustrated because, you know, that's something I was look, very looking forward to. And I just kind of reminded myself that um, it, maybe it happened for a reason. Um, maybe I wasn't going to have it yesterday. Maybe I'll have it today or maybe, you know, I'll, I'll hit something, you know, big or, you know, I don't know. I was just reminding myself that in the hotel that, you know, we didn't play today because there was a reason behind it. David, we'll never know, right? If Ortiz was going to throw four scoreless on Monday, if he was going to hit a game winner, what would have happened? But it's one of the things that makes sports so much fun is here's this wrinkle, right? And and, and all of a sudden you're not playing. And how do you process that as an athlete? And uh, clearly the approach that Devin Ortiz took uh, was a successful approach. Well, and and Mike, Ortiz needed to be locked down as a starter because Hunter Gregory, mm-hmm. his opposing starter yesterday, went perfect for the first five and a third. 16 up, 16 down before UVA finally got to him with a, a sixth inning double, didn't get anything out of it. And finally, the Cavaliers got into the Monarchs bullpen and were able to do their damage. Logan Michaels is the one who uh, broke up the uh, perfect game with that sixth inning double. Yeah, it's one of the, I I love baseball, but it's one of the cruelties of baseball um, to have a start 
like that kid did uh, yeah. in a game that meant so much to his program, and then to come away empty-handed. And, and you know, you see it at every level of baseball. You've seen in the majors, guys go, you know, eight great innings and, and then see the bullpen uh, give it up. And um, as we said, you know, an amazing year for ODU and some amazing stuff beyond Ortiz for UVA in terms of oh, yeah. pitch, pitchers that maybe we didn't expect to factor in in a big way. I'm thinking about five scoreless innings uh, for Matt Wyatt against South Carolina, the home team, mind you, even though they weren't the one seed. Uh, I'm thinking about Brandon Neek's 16 strikeouts in the earlier meeting with ODU out of the bullpen. Uh, David, they got some lifts from guys that that I imagine you and I were not anticipating. And Griff McGarry, yeah. who, who who started the game, the first game against Old Dominion. And Mike, to think in that first Old Dominion game, McGarry and Neek combined for 24 strikeouts. Well, let's let's roll that math now. There's 27 outs in a game. This game didn't go extras. 24 of 27 outs via strike. I mean, you, you've never seen anything like that. It was no, remarkable. It really was, stats. and not and not against schlubs, right? <laughs> right? Against a lineup that doesn't strike out a lot. Like this wasn't a free swinging lineup that had strikeout problems. This is a Good hitting, good plate discipline, dangerous lineup. It wasn't the kind of lineup where you say, hey, I'm just going to throw strikes because they can't do anything with it. Uh, there were a lot of quality pitches <laughs> in those 24 strikeouts to get to that number. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I think I saw one, one guy in the lineup, I, I forget who it was, struck out all five times hmm. uh, against UVA th- that evening. No, it's just to, to think that they were able to – to navigate that minefield of having lost the the opener and and to get to a super regional where they'll they'll stay right there in, in Columbia to play Dallas Baptist which really is is a downer it's going to be the only neutral site regional i know they did these things because of covid and the like but dang, it'd be nice to have that regional or that super regional in Charlottesville this weekend. Yeah, I, I thought that when they were playing ODU also, but just have it closer for the fans, you know, especially when the game gets moved now last minute. Hey, people might show up. And uh, it was a pretty empty stadium <laughs> when UVA played ODU. Uh, you know, the traveling fans did a nice job, but there weren't many casual fans, certainly a Tuesday 9 a.m. start time didn't <laughs> didn't right. help, but yeah, it, it would be great to. And again, like you said, you know, this is a, still a COVID year, and um, you know, wouldn't be the case normally, but it sure would be nice to to not. Oh, that was a heck of a challenge too, David, to have not only a really good number one seed in Old Dominion in your bracket, but your two seed has one of the most rabid home fan bases, and you're playing in their stadium. Uh, all the more reason it's impressive that UVA emerged. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, beat South Carolina in, in, in that third game after having beaten Jacksonville the, the, the day before. So absolutely props to Brian O'Connor. And, and they've been great on the road, mm-hmm. you know, coming down the stretch in the ACC. This is a team, Mike, as, as you well know, that opened four and 12 <laughs> in, in ACC play. And similarly, NC State opened one and eight in ACC play in the Wolfpack also in the Super Regionals this weekend, where they have a really daunting task because they go to number one seed Arkansas. So David, we, we've talked a bunch about how great this regional was. Now, are we back to seeing UVA as that 
top five team and, and a team that can go and win a super regional and, and, and make the college world series? Are we, are we back to that level of belief in these guys? Well, f- full disclosure, I know darn little about Dallas Baptist baseball <laughs> uh, other than the Patriots are in the NCAA tournament frequently. Mm-hmm. And this is their second super. They, they made it 10 years ago, have, have never been, to Omaha. So much like Old Dominion, Dallas Baptist is, is aiming for, for program history. But other, otherwise, you know, my, my, my knowledge is, is nil. But the, the way Virginia is pitching, especially, and, and Brian O'Connor said it yesterday, he said, I've got some decisions to make regarding how we deploy on the mound. And there are good decisions to have because everyone is is pitching. So, you know, you've got to think you'll see Andrew Abbott in, in game one. We saw him come out of the pen very briefly yesterday. But, you know, after that, he's got some options now. Yeah, I, I, I really like this Virginia team. I think we're getting the Virginia team we thought we were going to get before that slow start. And Abbott, to me, is the biggest reason still. Um, you know, he was named today uh, one of 25 semifinalists for the Golden Spikes Award, goes to the, the best amateur baseball player. And, um, you know, his his going from being a very good Friday starter to being a lights-out Friday starter, mm-hmm. to me, that's what has spurred this this entire turnaround for UVA. And I like their chances. Like you said, D- Dallas Baptist, <laughs> I've covered them now a couple times. I mean, that's that's how much of a regular they are in NCAA tournament play, uh, but they're not a traditional program to advance. And um, I think you got to like UVA's chances in this one. Yeah, now, back, to, back to Omaha for a, for a fifth time. Wouldn't that be so? I mean, and, and, you know, there were people, because I believe we're, we're right near the end of uh, Brian O'Connor's contract, uh, and there were people who had emailed me during that slow start, do you think UVA will keep Brian O'Connor? And I said, I, I can't, even if the year goes sideways, it would be hard to imagine um, with what, what he's accomplished. And, and I know the, there's been some relatively lean years since 2017, and they ended that NCA drought. But to me, what Brian O'Connor has built in Charlottesville is remarkable, uh, and it's built to last. And the fact that they're in another Super Regional kind of proves that. Oh, it, it absolutely does. I've, I think Virginia's biggest worry about Brian O'Connor is a program such as Arizona State or LSU coming after him because they have openings. <laughs> When Paul Manieri, who's his you know, mentor, yes. and he worked together with Team USA, I got to go down to Cary that year and spend time with, with both of them and talk about their, their time in baseball together. Um, I'm sure there, there is a part there of, of Paul that will be recommending uh, potentially Brian for, for that spot. But um, like I said, he's built something very special in Charlottesville, and, and it seems to be back on track. So I don't know that uh, he'd be in any hurry to leave either. No. Now, there was a coach who left JMU softball not that long ago after really getting that program rolling, Mickey Dean, who, who's a, a big name you know, in, in the state. He was replaced by an assistant of his who has now made JMU softball a national brand. David, your alma mater, they've been the story of the month. Uh, <laughs> with what they've done with Odyssey Alexander, uh, winning that that Knoxville Regional, winning the Super Regional at Missouri, and, and coming within one win of the Women's College World Series Championship Series. So, David, before we get too into the the weeds on the team, as a uh, as a JMU guy, did you enjoy watching this run? Well, degree on the wall, notwithstanding, I would have enjoyed the run. 
My wife is a former Division Three catcher. We watch softball in Casa de Teal. And we were, of course, because of my connection to JMU and because of Odyssey Alexander mm. and just her charisma and Lindsay Meeks and Kate Gordon and, and all of them, they were such fun to watch. Alma mater pride, you know, out of it. Yeah, it really was. And, and I'm not a guy who's watched a lot of softball. I haven't covered a lot of college softball. I did cover a, a regional in Harrisonburg with JMU once, um, but I, I was captivated. I was captivated by the whole personality of the team. I mean, from the videos of reaching first and flexing to the unbelievable oh, yeah. play Alexander made it at home Oof. plate against Oklahoma State. I mean, these are these are iconic plays that I'm just glad they happened on a stage where they could be enjoyed. And when I say stage, national TV, right? Mm-hmm. People were watching um, because there are a lot of years, and, and especially when it comes to, to female athletes, where some of these amazing runs and these amazing plays, they're being underappreciated because they're just not on TV. They're not being shown. We're not being exposed to them. And uh, I'm very glad that this amazing team with this just remarkable player going on this great run was also something that was put in front of the nation's eyes for everybody to enjoy. Absolutely. And let's be clear, this was not some kind of improbable, pun intended, out of left field (laughs) run to Oklahoma City. I mean, this was the third time in the last five years that the Dukes reached the Super Regional. This is the eighth consecutive NCAA tournament in which JMU has earned a bid. Mickey Dean started it. Lauren Laporte has sustained it. They play a lights-out non-conference schedule every season. This year, uh, aside because of the pandemic, it was it was tap, tampered down or uh, tamped down quite a bit. But they are unafraid of playing anyone, and you could see it in Oklahoma City. You know, here they are playing Oklahoma, which won its first national championship back in, I think, 2002, which, or in 2000, which is two years before JMU's program even started. <laughs> and Duke, they weren't intimidated. They, they, you know, they, went, they went toe-to-toe with Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Um, just unafraid, and it was so much fun to watch. And I think they got it. Now, granted, a lot of seniors that they will say goodbye to, but the, the way the program is trending – got to like their chances. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk about athletes and talking to the media, right? And a lot of it has come out of tennis and and what's happening there. But one of the other things, and and it's not the most important thing, but one of the other things that I really enjoyed is the personalities of this team. And in particular, Odyssey Alexander, what a great representative of your university, of women's sports in general. Every time you heard her talk, in the back of your mind, you thought, yeah, I like her. I hope I hope things go well for her. And, and that's just such a valuable commodity to have when you're trying to promote a sport like softball that, that isn't promoted on the level of, of basketball or football. Nope. You're, again, you're, you're spot on. And she was terrific. Her, her teammates were great. I mean, Lindsay Meeks. I mean, <laughs> how, how could you not like her? I mean, when she had her last at bat, and I believe she drew a walk 
and and the game is over the other day. It, it, I think it was seven to one, and and she strolls down to first base, and the fans started chanting. They wanted her to flex one last time, <laughs> and she broke into this big grin, and she flexed. And then she blew kisses to the crowd. I mean, it was a great moment. It really was. Like I said, just great personalities. Alexander got uh, a standing ovation from mm-hmm. where were they <laughs> in Oklahoma, right? Yep. So it's it's uh, you know two of the teams that that you put on the edge of their seats, two that you beat earlier in, in the draw, and uh, it, it just shows an appreciation because we did we did see something special, and who knows, maybe we've been sleeping a little bit on, on college softball as a, a viewer uh, fan sport. Not in our house. I say you guys are, as always, ahead, ahead of the of, curve. Ahead of the curve, <laughs> to use another baseball pun. <laughs> yes. Well, while we're talking about JMU and this impressive run, it brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got. Of course, the Who You Got's going to be about James Madison, considering that it's David's alma mater and it's a program that Mike covered for 10 years earlier in his career. Recency bias tells us that uh, Odyssey Alexander is the greatest, biggest star athlete in the school's history. Uh, in your opinion, who wears that crown? James Madison's biggest star. Who you got? Let's start with David. Well, yes. Recency bias would, would dictate Odyssey. And in the social media era, of course, you know, everyone, you know, she's getting tweets from Terrell Owens and Billie Jean King and everyone shouting her out. But the biggest star athlete that JMU has ever produced, in my mind, and maybe I'm missing somebody and Mike can remind me, would be Pro Football Hall of Famer Charles Haley. That's the name I came up with for this question, too. And, you know, the, when I was there, Dawn Evans from women's basketball, mm-hmm. she was a national name and uh, electrifying. CJ Sapong, the, the men's soccer player, um, you know, also national name in their sports. But Charles Haley is a name that I think transcends his sports. Now, if you want to get into the weeds of, okay, how great was he in college versus how great did he become in the pros? Uh, you know, Evans and, and Sapong may have accomplished more at James Madison, but what Haley went on to do with all the Super Bowl titles, with um, his place as as David said, as a Hall of Famer, uh, yeah, I think Charles Haley. If you if you close your eyes and 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 you, and, and you think about JMU and you don't think of Lefty Drizel, which is still <laughs> like the, the name that I kept coming, and I'm like, well, he's not an athlete. Don't use Lefty Drizel. <laughs> um, uh, I think Charles Haley. To me, yeah, he, he's he's still the one, and you know, it'll be interesting to see where Odyssey Alexander ranks 10 years from now. And and I hope people remember her because she really was something special. Oh, they'll remember her. Uh, That that play against Oklahoma State, (laughs) trust me, she she has her place in JMU lore. Yeah, I I hope that play gets the, uh, I mean, it'll never get the grainy video uh, treatment of the Willie Mays over the shoulder catch. Uh, But to me, it's that kind of a a play. It's it's the kind of play that... um, Little little girls, little boys, everybody can you know reenact when they're playing mm-hmm. in the yard. Yes. Um, it, it's I mean it was that thrilling, that heady, right? Reminded me of, of Derek Jeter a little bit in the flip play, um, just the awareness uh, and the athleticism. I mean the, the sheer athleticism to physically do that. Um, yeah, it's an indelible memory that she left us with, and a lot of indelible memories from that run. It was it's a kind of magical run that that really is the best of sports and. This next story, David, out of Blacksburg is the opposite. And, oh. and, you know, we get them from time to time and, and they just, they eat at you because they, they're they're not what we signed up to cover uh, when we all got into the sports writing business. 
By now, you've surely heard a freshman football player at Virginia Tech, Isaiah Tute, was arrested last week, charged with murder. The victim was a 40-year-old gay man who police say was an acquaintance of Itute. More details came out. Mike Nislick of the Roanoke Times is covering for us. Uh, more details coming out today. Multiple encounters uh, between Itute and his victim. Uh, who, as I mentioned, was gay and was also apparently on one of these dating apps, uh, according to what the prosecutor said in court today. Uh, We haven't gotten many more details. Tute, of course, has been suspended from school, suspended from the team. David, anyway, you cut this in any way the facts come out. This is an ugly story. Yeah. Oh, it's it's beyond grim. And Tute, Mike, according to court testimony today, you know, he, he told the authorities that he punched the victim in the head five times and then kicked him when he was down and heard gurgling as he was leaving the apartment and never called police. And he thought he was there to have sex with a woman. And he told police that when he discovered it was a man, he lost it. And that's when the violence happened. And the coroner said that you know, he was beaten savagely. And it is. It just it tears at you. It's just a gruesome, gruesome, tragic story. Hearing those details today and, and the part that really turned my stomach was thinking back to a story that Mike Nislick wrote where he uh, had spoke to a, a spokesman for the victim's family who at one point described him as 114 pounds soaking wet. Um and that you know that's one of those things where you think about um, how much damage a person can do to another person, um, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether else it's happening. Uh, somebody as powerful as a college athlete, um, uh, you know, beating somebody uh, as potentially defenseless as it seems that maybe this this victim was, uh, it's just it really is a, a tragedy. And and you know it's a tragedy on multiple fronts because in many ways for a Tute that this could be you know an, an end for him. Um, and, and and it just, you know, one of those things that, that that no good comes out of a story like this. And and that's what really, I think breaks your heart. Yeah. And, you know, he had been at Virginia tech for essentially five minutes. He was an, an, an early enrollee who graduated from Cox high school in Virginia beach early. So he could go to Blacksburg and participate this spring in, in football practice. And his, you know, his college career is over and you would think that, you know, a good bit of his life is going to be unpleasant. Yeah. Based certainly on what the prosecutor said, it, it appears that he was uh, at least initially cooperative with the police, which mm-hmm. um, certainly we're not criticizing that, but it, it, it certainly makes it sound that, that some jail time would be uh, inevitable, whether they see fit to offer him some kind of a plea or, or this goes to trial. Um you know, when you essentially tell the police the things that the prosecutor says that he, he's already told them, uh, it's an uphill battle to, to certainly stay out of prison. How about big picture, David? Uh, Devin Hunter, the safety from the football team, he had a messy assault charge. It was a felony, reduced down to a misdemeanor, reinstated. Tyrese Radford, the basketball star, he had that ugly DUI with a gun charge and, again, brought down and, and he was reinstated. And um, both coaching staffs talk about you know the character and what kind of guy they believe they have, the confidence they have that it's right to bring these kids back. But for Virginia Tech and, and the school's image, uh, this isn't great. No, 
clearly it, it, it's not. And, it, and it, you're right to talk about the school's image because it's not just the particular sport and it's not the athletic department. It's the institution in total and universities across the country deal with this on a, on a daily basis, misbehavior and occasionally criminal behavior from their students. It happens. And then you have to make these case by case decisions on reinstatement or permanent separation. How are you going to play it? Now, Hunter has maintained all along that he was innocent and that he took a plea just to um, just to hasten the, the process. He just didn't want it to, to linger. And he, he, you know, apparently met all the concerns that Justin Fuente and his staff and what Babcock and the administration had and hence his his recent uh, reinstatement, but a reinstatement. But uh, yeah, it's it's something that the the entire institution and, and Mike Nisley talked to Tim Sands about it the the other day after a board of visitors meeting. This this incident was discussed in the board of visitors meeting. That's the highest level of university governance, and of course it would be. It's a concern for for everyone there in Blacksburg. Yeah, I think maybe the most important thing you said there was case by case, and, and I think. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to say Devin Hunter, Tyrese Radford, and now there's a murder and to lump that all together and how unfair to Devin Hunter or to Tyrese Radford and and depending how this case plays out, just because of the timing, should they face more of a penalty? If your program's been clean for a while, is it easier? Yeah, it's easier to reinstate somebody. When you're dealing with all this, is it harder? Yeah, it's harder, but it doesn't make it doesn't affect right and wrong. And if Devin Hunter deserved to be reinstated, you reinstate Devin Hunter. If Tyrese Radford deserved to be reinstated, you make that move. I will say, and I wonder, if this murder case had happened first, do those guys get those second chances? Uh, or is because is, it's public opinion. Right. It's I mean, how many people did it did it, we see in our Twitter feed criticizing Mike Young, who, at least in my experience, does things the right way mm-hmm. and is uh, is in it for all the right reasons. And yet I had people in my Twitter feed saying, well, of course, he took him back, took Tyrese Radford back. He just wants to win. That's what matters. And that's not the Mike Young. I know I don't think it's the Mike Young. You know, uh, Justin Fuente. Forever, what I want to say about his media availability, Justin Fuente has shown nothing but being a compassionate and a strong leader for his team. Um, I always go back to that Austin Cannon story, uh, you know, where a player almost takes his life, and Justin, the role he played in, in being there at that moment and beyond. Uh, so, to me, these men have shown their character, and you know, I tend to trust them when they make these decisions. Maybe I'm naive, but I tend to trust them when they make these decisions because they have an entire program to worry about. I I think they are doing, quote unquote, the right things. Well, and plus, Mike, and I I agree with your points, Fuente clearly has a longer track record at Virginia Tech than does Mike Young. And Justin Fuente has been a very firm disciplinarian at times during his tenure leading Virginia Tech football. And he has parted ways with some very talented players. And you could argue that it cost him, but he didn't want them in his program. And so he decided to separate permanently. And that that's why, yes, case by case. Yep, agree 100%. 
Now, back to the field and the more positive side of sports that we started with today. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening, UVA has already added another national championship trophy to its considerable haul. Uh, I got to head up to Hartford for that final four and saw Lars Tiffany's team win a really pair of thrilling one-goal games uh, to secure their back-to-back national titles. Those are the first in program history. Uh, David, unlike that 2019 championship run where that team was scoring late to, to, to win in thrilling fashion. This year, it was all about holding on to leads. They were were coming out of the gates great. And then the other team was sort of firing back, whether it was Carolina or Maryland. And and man, that final play of the championship game against Maryland, David, I don't know if you were tuned in for that. I imagine so. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was as thrilling and a when you talk about heart stopping, that's one of those ones where nobody was breathing in the press box because we're like, I'm waiting to see how it ended up. Maryland, uh, you know, with Virginia up by a goal and, and 10 seconds left, wins a faceoff, and their faceoff man essentially goes straight up the middle, uh, unchecked yeah. to the goal, gets a shot off that he essentially fires into Alex Rhodes' chest. Chest. The, yes. the save of his career, although Alex said he was basically just standing in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that was memorable stuff, and, and th- that was a really good weekend, I thought, for college lacrosse. No, it was fabulous. And Mike, that's the way that sport rolls. I mean, the championship weekend of Division One men's lacrosse almost always delivers th- this kind of, of drama. I, f- I forget what the stat is. I-, I looked it up and wrote about it a little bit after, after Virginia's victory o- over Maryland. But basically, half the championship games are like one-goal games. It, it it's uncanny how dramatic and competitive these contests are when you get to that final game. It it's really really compelling entertainment, and for someone like me who spent so much of his youth in Baltimore around lacrosse and around lacrosse players, you know this this is not a, a revelation. I've long loved the game. And it, it's cool to, you know, at least once a year on Memorial Day to watch everyone else get so engaged with it. Yeah, you're, you're one of the ones who, who sold me on it, uh, telling me kind of your your experiences and, and caused me to give it more of a, a second look. And, and I've really enjoyed covering this team. And part of the reason is the personality. And Lars Tiffany in particular, if you get the chance to talk to him, is just a fascinating guy. And it reminds me of Bronco Mendenhall in the sense that he's very open uh, and very introspective. He, he talks about things he thinks he's done wrong and things that didn't work out and in a way that a lot of coaches with their their ego or worried about their image, that they don't get into that with the media, right? Um, you know, they want to portray themselves as the be all and end all. And, you know, one of the things Lars Tiffany told me was they won that 2019 national championship. They came back in 2020 and he told the team, don't talk about it. Don't talk about 2019. Don't draw comparisons. Nothing's the same. That That's done. We're not talking about repeating. And he said he was so strict and so hard and fast about that, that it, it brought a, a tension and a pressure to the team. And when 2020 got wiped out because of COVID, Lars said it was like he got a do-over. <laughs> and he, he actually spoke with the Georgetown soccer coach and talked about his approach to, to, to trying to defend a title and um, how it was the opposite. It was talk about how it's possible, um, draw from that experience, uh, appreciate that experience. And um, the do-over worked out pretty well, pretty <laughs> well for this team. And you know, the other thing that he was very honest about was they brought back a ton of talent. 
And then they brought in a transfer in Charlie Bertrand, who was a two-time player of the year at Merrimack Division II. Uh, they brought back, kind of unexpectedly, Dox Aitken, an All-American who had left to play football at Villanova. And all of a sudden, where maybe you and I would sit there and say, well, that's great. You got more great players. Lars Tiffany had a real problem with playing time and keeping everybody happy, finding the right mixes on the field. Um and he said they battled that chemistry issue and, and that playing time issue really for almost the entire season until they got into the postseason. And um, really in the postseason, man, they, they found a way to, to make it work uh, in impressive fashion. They did. And they, they had that close call right out of the shoot mm-hmm. against Bryant. Yeah, that's, that's a game. Okay, Virginia Bryant, that's not going to be close. And what was the final there? 13-11? Uh, and then, but then they, they, they did, they, they got on a run and then their quarterfinal blowout of Georgetown, that might've been the most impressive performance of the tournament. Yeah. And that, and that was the one that really made me think, okay, this team uh, has a chance to win another title because Georgetown was one of the hottest teams in the country. Mm-hmm. I think we were expecting that one goal drama in that one and not confident that Virginia would emerge when they won that in that fashion, they went to Hartford with a ton of confidence and, and even the, the one goal nature of the Carolina semifinal didn't rattle that confidence. And David, I got to tell you, I I was looking for something to write when I got back. Uh, Actually, I was on the plane when I wrote most of it and looking over the roster and what they bring back, including Connor Schellenberger, who is, um, a transcendent star as a freshman for the sport. Uh, this is a team that is built uh, to have those expectations to possibly do it again. Yeah, three peat, and which is which would be a rarity in this sport. Yeah, championships don't grow on trees. Although Mike Krzyzewski kind of at times made it look like they did when he was <laughs> at Duke, uh, and with the Olympics, and, and really everything Mike Krzyzewski touched. Maybe the biggest news uh, since our last podcast was was Coach K announcing his intention to retire after the coming season. Duke already naming assistant John Shire as the, as the coach in waiting. Uh, before we get into that, David, you know Mike Krzyzewski really well. I mean, you cover the league as deeply as anybody. Uh, these coaches know you are comfortable talking to you. Were you surprised that he is stepping away, retiring now? No. I, when someone's 74, I don't think you can be surprised. <laughs> That, that they're retiring and, and by the time Mike steps away, he'll, he'll be 75. So I think he just d- decided it was time. It, it was so different, Mike, in the tone of Krzyzewski's retirement press conference and Roy Williams's. I mean, Roy was so hard on himself and I'm not the right guy for the job anymore. And I'm doing a terrible job and it's time to turn this thing over. Whereas Mike was so upbeat and I just want to spend time with my grandkids and I'm going to be 75 and Mickey and I just decided we, we want to give it one more ride. And I absolutely believe him. He's very grateful that it's not a health issue. And, you know, the easy take here is that, oh, it's name, image, and likeness. It's the transfer portal. It's all this driving this old school coach away. That is nonsense. Because as as you know, from having listened to Coach K over the years, there are few, if any, coaches who are as progressive a thinker as he is when it comes to athlete compensation or athletes' ability to have a relationship with an agent and retain their eligibility. And just general 
college athlete welfare. That's not what is, is pushing him away. He just decided that at 75, it's time. Heck, I hope I can make that call when I'm 75. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because the the take or the notion that Mike Krzyzewski was um, unable to handle change, his first coaching job was in 1974 as an assistant at Indiana. His first head coaching job was in 75 at Army. The game, and he said this in his farewell presser party event there, that the kickoff to his farewell tour, I guess. Yeah. The game has changed a lot <laughs> in the in the 40-something years that he's been doing this. Uh, so the idea that, that oh, I, I can't deal with the change. Now, a thing that I do think is maybe so spoken by some, unspoken by other coaches at this point, I think the pandemic took a lot out of all these guys. Oh, sure. Uh, and when Mike Krzyzewski talks about wanting to spend more time with his family, I think that's genuine. You know, we, we've heard that, you know, when a guy's 38 and says that, there's usually some scandal. <laughs> under right. the. But at, at Mike's age, with everything we've gone through, with the time with our families that we've lost, um, I think it's very genuine. And I agree. I, I listen to him speak and, and having listened to him speak for, for years now, you know, I don't think there's a challenge or a change or a curveball that Mike Krzyzewski is afraid of. And I don't know that he's tired of dealing with them. I think he's just accomplished, right? He's done so yeah. much. And I think he realizes, Hey, I don't, I don't have to do this. I don't have anything burning that I haven't accomplished. And I think it speaks volumes that it wasn't retirement. It was, this is going to be my last year. He's got the energy, right? He's got mm -hmm. the skills. He believes he can go out and pursue another championship. Uh, and then when he's done pursuing that, it's time to, to enjoy, you know, retirement. And, and yeah. I think, I think that should be celebrated. And, and he's, he's, he's got a great advantage, you know, all four or excuse me, all three of his daughters and yeah. all 10 of his grandchildren are right there. Yeah. They're all in the Durham area. And so he, you know, he doesn't have to travel hither and yon to, to, to see the grands. He, he's going to have the chance to, to see them, every day if, if that's how uh, he chooses to play it. So absolutely. I mean, good on him. And you mentioned his first head coaching gig at Army. Mike, those five seasons in retrospect are beyond underrated. Mike Krzyzewski coached Army to three straight winning records. That program hasn't had two straight winning records since he left for Duke. So you're, you're saying this Coach K guy is pretty decent basketball coach? So yeah. That's, which brings us to the next question. And there'll be plenty of time to kick this around. But how about the man following the man? The guy who gets to replace the legend, John Shire. David, I got to be honest. I thought, I thought they would stay in the K family. But I thought it would be Steve Wojcikowski or Tommy Amaker or Bobby Hurley or Johnny Dawkins. Somebody with head coaching experience. Is this a good hire? And is this good timing to make this move? Number one, I don't know if it's if it's a good hire, but given the timing that and, and Mike Shashevsky, because of his military background, he wanted succession. You know, th mm -hmm. this is like a turnover of command in in the army. This is how he was raised at West Point as a student and and then as uh, an, an officer. Is that the, the, the commander identifies his successor and then grooms him. Where he essentially forced Duke's hand and made John Shire the only choice was that he wanted one more season 
And he wanted to announce it before the season to give complete transparency to prospects. That way he's not recruiting. The new staff is recruiting. So Tommy Amaker is not leaving Harvard now to spend a year in Mike Krzyzewski's side before taking over. Bobby Hurley's not leaving Arizona State. Johnny Dawkins isn't leaving his gig at, at UCF. Now, whoa, Joe, he's available. <laughs> but but, but you, you, you get where I'm coming yes. from. Sh- Sh- Shire was, I don't know if he's a good hire, but he's the only hire. Yeah, and the thing that I like about it is – now John Shire won't be recruiting against uh, the ghost of Mike Shashevsky, right? right? It's not Mike Shashevsky's gone, but but remember what he did, and and maybe we can do that too. Mike Shashevsky is still going to be able to be a part of these recruitments to explain to kids why John Shire was a good choice, to mm-hmm. explain to kids why they should continue what he started at Duke. That has a value that I think is um, maybe underappreciated, that, that that he is going to be able to um, sell this hire as opposed to the opposite, the negative recruiting of, well, don't go play for Mike Krzyzewski. You don't know when he's going to retire. Well, now you do. You know what's happening. You know what's happening at Duke. But if your dream was to play at Duke, and if you are a believer in Mike Krzyzewski, we'll give him a moment to pitch to you why it's still the right move for you. And I think that's going to be invaluable. And like you said, we don't know how it's going to pan out for John Shire, but I think he's being given a a great running start. And that is the topic that brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thanks, Mike. You got two legendary basketball coaches leaving the state of North Carolina. Here's Take It or Leave It. New Duke basketball coach John Shire, taking over for Coach K, will win a national championship before Hubert Davis, who takes over at North Carolina, for Roy Williams this season. Take it or leave it. Let's start with Mike. <laughs> and I, I have no idea. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to leave it purely on the basis that Hubert Davis is getting a one-year head start. So he will be w- one year closer down the line to, to, to pursuing and achieving, uh, to learning what, what goes into being a head coach uh, when he's actually sitting in that chair. Um, I do believe that both of these programs are going to maintain their status as elite. Um, I think that Hubert Davis and John Shire are the kind of coaches who appeal to young players. I think Duke and Carolina will carry their appeal. Um, I think they're both going to be successful ultimately. Um, I, I think they've both been schooled. And, and Hubert Davis, if you haven't read some of the stories, I think Andrew Carter wrote one of them about Hubert Davis coaching the the junior varsity team uh, there and, and getting that big whistle experience. I think they're both going to be very successful. Um, I'll give the edge to Hubert Davis because he's got a year head start, so I'll leave it. Okay. Uh, thanks, Mike. David? I will take it if you're telling me they're both going to win a national championship. Odds are neither will just because usually when you take over for the man, it, it doesn't work out. But simply because yes, Hubert Davis is going to have a one-year head start on, on John Shire. But as I look at the rosters for next season, I think Duke is going to be markedly better than Carolina, which I think will give Shire momentum going into his first year that Hubert Davis won't have going into his second season, if that makes any sense at all. 
It does. And it's uh, one of those questions that we'll have to revisit five or 10 years down the line, or or like you said, maybe never, <laughs> because uh, it is not an easy thing, no matter how easy at times, maybe Roy Williams and, and Mike Krzyzewski made it look, it is not an easy thing to win one championship, let alone multiple championships. Well, thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next time.